Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 160 for September 13th, 2009. Well, now, here's a surprise. Guess what this week's topic is. After explaining last week that I planned to install Windows 7 on my primary desktop computer, I figured you'd expect to hear more about it this week, and so you shall. Differences exist, some are small, some are large, between the release candidate and the version that will be in new computers and on store shelves starting October 22nd. That surprised me perhaps a bit more than it should have. When the release to manufacturing version was released to Microsoft TechNet subscribers, I downloaded it, created an installation DVD, and took aim squarely at my foot. What are holiday weekends for, after all, if not for installing new versions of operating systems? I had been running Release Candidate 1 on the notebook for several months, and I liked it. I upgraded it first to the RTM code, and the notebook upgrade went so well that I decided to proceed with the desktop system. I kept contemporaneous notes, which I later lightly edited. You'll find a link to those notes on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. It's three pages of PDF document that pretty much describes the process as it happened. This all makes me think back to the early days of Vista. I tried to like Vista. I installed it, thought I liked it, but there were some misgivings. Probably I should have paid more attention to those. Later, I went through several cycles of disliking it, kind of liking it again, and in the end, deciding to take it off the machine the last time it brought down the machine. In this case, I've actually been running the early version of Windows 7 for several months. So let's start with what you'll see when the program is running. One thing you'll notice on the TechBiter Worldwide website screenshots is the taskbar at the bottom is a double-deck taskbar. Now, this isn't what you'll see unless you make it that way. I just usually have so many things running that I like to have a double-deck taskbar. You'll find the Start menu where you would expect it to be in the lower left-hand corner. One of the most useful new features is the ability to start a program by pressing the Start button and typing the first few letters of the program's name. So if I press the Start button and type W-O-R, it'll find Word. I like this for starting programs that I don't use very often. You can, of course, drill down through the menus as in the past, but I think this is faster. The Quick Start area, however, is missing. But you can pin any open application to the taskbar so the icon stays there even after you've closed the program. This appears to have been copied shamelessly from the Mac, but it's a good addition. I keep about 10 applications on the taskbar ready for immediate access, when an application is running, hovering the mouse over the taskbar icon displays a thumbnail view of the application, and if you have multiple documents open in a particular application, you'll see thumbnails of each of the documents. This works well most of the time, but not all of the time. I found that with Excel running multiple spreadsheets, all you get is the name of the spreadsheet. I suspect they'll fix that. Icons in the tray are much more manageable than they were in the past. Now you can activate or deactivate most of them individually. 
Unlike on the Mac, Windows creates a scrollable list of icons when there are too many to fit in the taskbar. Apple handles this better. At the right edge of the taskbar, to the right of the tray, is a small rectangular space. You might wonder what that's for. Hover the mouse there, and all the running applications become transparent so you can see what's on the desktop. Click, and all running applications will minimize. Some of the system functions provide a lot more information than in the past. When I needed to delete more than 27,000 files from an external USB drive, the display told me how many files it was deleting per second and estimated the time remaining. Perhaps the largest and most welcome new feature to Windows 7 is Home Groups. If you've ever battled a home network, you're going to love this. Windows 7 has the best file and printer sharing that Microsoft has ever created. When two computers that are on the same network are both running Windows 7, they recognize each other, and users can share resources with ease. Once you've set up home groups on both machines, and that literally takes just a couple of minutes, as soon as another computer is on the network, it shows up in the other computer's home groups list. Sharing a directory through home groups is as easy as right-clicking and then choosing whether those who have access to the directory can read files but not write or change them, or whether they have full access to the files. And you can also share directories with specific users. The control panel is also greatly improved in Windows 7. Functions are grouped into logical areas, and some controls are accessible from more than one submenu. Additional functionality exists for some of the functions. The volume control, for example, allows you to set a different level for system sounds or to mute those sounds altogether while still allowing the sound card to work for, oh, say, for example, iTunes. After drilling down several levels, you might want to back up to a previous level in the control panel, and throughout the interface you'll find breadcrumb lists at the top. Clicking one of the items in the breadcrumb list will take you back to that level. This is the case for the Windows Explorer, too. Return to any spot along the path, no matter how far you've drilled down, by simply clicking on one of the previous spots. And if you need to have the path in its standard form, you know, C colon backslash, that kind of thing, just click the file folder icon at the left, and then you can copy and paste the path. When it comes to eye candy and ear candy, Windows 7 has everything you could imagine. Themes abound. You can modify and save them or even create your own from scratch. And there are 14 sound themes. This isn't really just fluff, either. If you spend a lot of time in front of a computer, it might as well look and sound pleasing to you. We decorate our homes, we decorate our cars, we decorate our office spaces. Why not our computers? If there's a sound you utterly detest, try one of the other sound themes, or turn that particular sound off, or change it with another sound. The ability to turn off sounds isn't a new feature, by the way, but it's one that most computer users probably wouldn't have been able to find. And colors. If you don't like a particular shade of a color in the interface, just change it. The process is easy. There are gadgets, first available under Vista, and they're still present in Windows 7. The standard gadgets are for time, weather, and computer resources. You can download others from the web. If you want to run more than one instance of a gadget, just drag multiple copies out onto the desktop. In the past week, I have found, because I put three weather gadgets on the desktop, that the temperatures in New York, Columbus, and San Jose are often within just a few degrees of each other. Now, there's some useless information for you. But there's a lot to like. 
in Windows 7. As much as I like the way Windows 7 works and looks, I'm really annoyed by Microsoft's decision to release multiple versions of the operating system and to withhold features that I consider to be essential from all but the high-end versions of the operating system. If Microsoft sold automobiles, I suspect that engines would be available only with the home premium automobile, and if you wanted tires and brakes, you would have to upgrade to the ultimate automobile. This is simply ridiculous. There is the starter version. It is for netbooks with processors slower than 2 gigahertz, 1 gigabyte of RAM or less, and no more than 250 gigabytes of disk space, and a monitor no larger than 10.2 inches diagonally. Users will not be able to customize the operating system, play DVDs, or access streaming media. You cannot have multiple monitors or use the fast switch option for multiple users. Arrow is not supported. If Arrow is not supported, how is this Windows 7? My advice on this one, do not buy a machine with Windows 7 starter. If you're buying a netbook, most of those come with Linux. That's probably a better bet. Home Basic. You probably won't find this version in the United States. Machines with Home Basic cannot play DVDs or stream multimedia files. But fast user switching is available. Arrow still not supported. Don't buy a machine with Windows Home Basic even if you can find one. Next version up is Home Premium. This is the lowest common denominator operating system. It also supports Arrow and includes DVD playback, better network management, and the most minimal set of features that most people will need. So if your needs are basic, choose Home Premium. Professional is the next step up. This version improves networking capabilities and it allows file encryption. For those who need to use XP mode, this is the first version that supports it. The lower versions do not. So my advice is that this is the lowest version I consider to be acceptable. If you're buying a Windows 7 machine, get at least the professional version. And there is an enterprise version. Except for large commercial customers, this version won't be available to most users. It is essentially Ultimate with another name. So my advice, unless you're a corporate user, you won't even have a chance to buy this version. At the top of the heap, Ultimate. This is the version that offers the same features as the Enterprise version, but will be available to everybody. My advice is that this is the version you should choose if you can afford it, and I think it's the only version Microsoft should have made available. To confuse things a bit more, most of those individual versions have 32- and 64-bit versions. At least the choice there is a little easier. If you have a computer that supports 64-bit software, that's what you want. And then we come to pricing. Home Premium will cost $120 for an upgrade or $200 to put it on a new machine. Professional is $200 to upgrade, $300 new. Ultimate, $220 to upgrade, $320 for a new machine. How does this compare to the latest Apple operating system upgrade? Snow Leopard, $30. $30 for the upgrade, or $50 for up to five machines. A new version would, of course, be included with the hardware, so Apple doesn't price it separately. If your computer is running XP, you must perform a clean installation for Windows 7. If your computer is running Vista, you should be able to upgrade in place, but I probably wouldn't. Previously, I've said that if you are running a Windows 7 release candidate, you'd have to perform a clean install. That's not entirely correct. There is a method that might allow you to upgrade in place, but the process is not recommended or supported by Microsoft. 
If you want to try it, make sure you have a complete and verified backup before you start, and you'll have to find the instructions on your own. That's just how much confidence that I don't have in recommending that method. In most cases, running XP applications will be a non-issue. A few applications simply will not run under Vista, and they probably won't run under Windows 7 either. But Windows 7, if you buy the professional version or higher, has an XP compatibility mode that may be able to run those kinds of applications. Microsoft's short-sighted decision to omit this feature from the home version, I think, is inexcusable. That's where it would most likely be needed. Run the Windows Advisor to determine whether you have any applications that aren't compatible with Windows 7. You'll probably find that you don't have any. And I'd like to take a moment to circle back around here on the pricing issue. If you're going to pay $220 just to upgrade your operating system to Windows 7 Ultimate, you might want to consider a Microsoft TechNet subscription. For about $250, you can subscribe to Microsoft TechNet. The subscription will provide multiple licenses for every version of every operating system Microsoft makes and multiple licenses for every Office application, too. TechNet subscriptions are typically $350 per year for the first year, $250 per year after that. If you search the Internet for a coupon or click a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a coupon that will reduce the price to about $250. With TechNet, there are some usage restrictions involved, so if you go that route, make sure you abide by the restrictions. In short circuits, Apple has a new operating system, too. Apple calls Snow Leopard the world's most advanced operating system, and it's available for just $29. Or if you have more than one Mac that can run Snow Leopard, $49 for the family pack, as I noted earlier, up to five machines. That's compared to a minimum of $120 for a Windows upgrade. So, yeah, Macs sure are more expensive than Windows machines, aren't they? However, Apple has kicked the door shut in the faces of people who own antique Macs, people like me, those with Macs that don't run on Intel processors. Sorry, Snow Leopard is not for you if you're in that group. This is the kind of thing that Microsoft rarely does, and that's too bad. It's actually too bad for Microsoft and Microsoft clients. Microsoft spends a lot of time trying to make things compatible. Users think that's good because they don't have to buy all new software. But the downside is that the efforts to make all those applications work under various conditions can be counterproductive. Sometimes you just have to say the end is the end. The system has evolved to the point that trying to keep it compatible with antiques just doesn't serve anybody well. Apple does that. Microsoft frequently does not. So, I won't be telling you much about Apple's Snow Leopard, at least not until I manage to scrape together enough money to consider purchasing a new Mac. This week I found out that I'm worth $32 to a cyber criminal. Cymatic has an online tool that's designed to do two things. Help people assess their risk of becoming a victim of online crime, and sell Cymatic Norton protective programs. It's a worthwhile tool that might help you think about risks that arise from being on the Internet. To use the tool, you'll need to visit a special Norton website. There's a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. The survey takes about five minutes, and you'll need to activate scripting support for the site to work. None of the questions will reveal any personally identifiable information about you. They are very general questions. At the end of the survey, you'll learn how much a criminal would probably be able to extract from your accounts, 
and what the going rate for information about your identity would be. According to Symantec, cybercrime is larger than the illegal drug business worldwide, and nearly 10 million U.S. citizens say they've been victimized in the past year. In total, about a quarter of all U.S. households have been touched at some point by cybercrime. For someone without much in the way of skills, cybercrime is appealing. You can buy a botnet kit, instructions, and spam software for about $500. It's far less than a KFC franchise. As always, the key is to be aware of where you are and what you're doing. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.